G'day everyone, how are you? My name's Dave, if we haven't met before. Happy Easter, isn't it terrific? I don't know if you remember last year, uh, we were still in the midst of all of it, but terrific to, to gather together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you know one of the great traditions in the church for thousands of years all around the world is we have a very special greeting on Resurrection Sunday. So the first person says, he is risen. And then some of you will know this already, of course. The response to that is... He is risen indeed. Now, we're going to practice that, and I'm going to do a competition between congregations. The prize is my eternal respect. It'll be incredible. So what I want you to do, though, just to practice it before we do it together, turn to the person. Oh, some of you are like, no. But turn to the person next to you, and one of you say, he is risen. The other one say, he is risen indeed. I'm going to put the pulpit up a little bit, and then we're going to try it together. So go for it. Give it a go. Well, let me tell you, that sounded really weird, okay? Now, let's try it together, okay? We're going to try it all together. Remember, it's a competition. It's a competition. Okay. <laughs> he is risen. He is risen indeed. We'll try it one more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Boy, that's a... Ooh. Man, beautiful, beautiful. Now, one of the other traditions, you might not know this, that comes with this, particularly in the Mediterranean part of the world, is after you say that, you give each other three kisses. So turn to the person next to you, give them, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. Oi, COVID, small steps, small steps as we came out of it. That tradition actually springs from the disciples' reaction upon realizing Jesus had risen from the dead. Luke chapter 24 tells us, the disciples began to exclaim to one another, he is risen, as it clicked into place what had happened. But believe it or not, that was not their initial reaction. When the disciples initially discovered the empty tomb and initially saw and interacted with the risen Jesus, well, it became very, very clear that they actually had no expectation this would happen at all. In fact, they had no idea that this is what was going to take place. Think of the women, the women who went to the tomb. They brought ointments to pour onto the body. They thought there was going to be a body there. The disciples, the male disciples, what were they doing? They were hiding in an upper room, terrified that they were going to be arrested, crucified themselves. And so their reaction emotionally to the empty tomb, to interacting with the, with the risen Jesus, wasn't joy or pleasure or delight. In fact, the word that you could use to describe their interaction with Jesus, their interaction with the risen Jesus, is surprise. They were surprised at what was going to happen. Now, that's interesting. Stay with me here. That's interesting for two reasons. One, Jesus didn't just prophesy and predict his death, although he did that many, many times. He also prophesied his resurrection. He had told them he was going to rise from the dead, but it hadn't clicked into place. But secondly, well, I want to put to you that the more you interact with Jesus, the more you understand Jesus, as we find out about um, in the Bible and the New Testament in his biographies, which we call the Gospels, the more you understand who Jesus is and what sort of man he was, you realize the disciples should have known better because Jesus was nothing else surprising. He was the master of surprise. You might think of Christianity, of being a Christian of Jesus as the status quo, as some powerful authoritative figure. You couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus was constantly countercultural. 
He was constantly surprising people, constantly um, um, going to their expectations and saying, wrong. Now, we see this in many areas in his life, but let me, let me tell you something. There's no area where we see it more clearly than the way Jesus approaches the topic of death. Now, death, um, it's one of, those, one of those topics that obviously um, we would rather avoid, most of us would rather avoid uh, thinking about for very good reason, because it's terrifying um, for us to think about. Um, it's one of the things, particularly within Western culture, our culture, when someone dies, um, we say goodbye to the body and then they're gone. That's it. We don't see it again. We push it to the side. We, we try not to think about it. In fact, there's three common responses to death uh, within our culture and community. One, we avoid it. We try not to think about it as much as possible. When it does happen, we try to, um, to domesticize it and just, just pretend it's not that big. Two, as Aussies, what do we do? We joke about it. We try to make light of it with some sort of black humour. Um, or three, we romanticise it. You know what I mean? We, we act as if death, the very act of death itself is the circle of life, just a beautiful thing, something that just happens and something to be beautified and, and write poetry about and romanticised. I think those are the most common responses we see to death in our community. And yet when Jesus approaches death... He does none of those things. In fact, he clashes with all of those viewpoints. When Jesus approaches death, it becomes very, very clear that he's come to confront it. He's come to confront it in what he says, but also in what he does. And that's exactly what we find happening in our passage today. And grab your piece of paper out if if you've got one of these on the way through. Um, Dawn just gave us a reading from John chapter 11. Now, John chapter 11 is an interaction that Jesus has uh, with another really well-known guy by the name of Lazarus. Has anyone here heard of Lazarus before? You've heard of Lazarus? Lazarus is one of the best-known people in the Bible. Um, And that's interesting because he actually doesn't say a single word. In fact, he's only in one chapter, and yet I'm convinced Lazarus... Is, is probably in Australian culture, in sporting culture, um, associated constantly. People know what happened to him a lot. He's so famous, he's got one name like a celebrity. You know, no last name, just Lazarus. And when people hear his name, many people associate it with what he's famous for. Like, um, like uh, if I say the name Beyonce, okay, what's she famous for? Singing. If I say Ronaldo, soccer, bleh. If I say the name Donald, well, cricket, Don Bradman is who I'm talking about. Who are you talking about? (laughs) Donald Duck? No, 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 no. So Lazarus, what is Lazarus famous for? Well, nothing that he did, but something that happened to him. Lazarus is well known, as many of you will know, for rising from the dead. But he didn't do it himself. Lazarus was raised from the dead by Jesus. And it's within that interaction, in what Jesus says and what Jesus does, where we see surprise after surprise after surprise. Now, I want to put to you, someone coming back from the dead is nothing if not surprising, because no one comes back from the dead. But what I'm convinced is really surprising about this interaction is that the resurrection of Lazarus, it's actually not the most surprising part of it. The interaction has more to it than just Lazarus' return from the dead. It's, it's saying something bigger, something 
that actually doesn't just involve Lazarus and his family, but involves every single one of us. So today what we're going to do is we're going to um, think about this passage together. And I, I just want to point out five surprises. Five surprises that, that we see within this passage um, that I'm convinced reveal to us the meaning of what's not just what's going on within the resurrection of Lazarus, but also actually point to us about the very meaning of the lives we live and the deaths that we will die. So, before we get there, let me just tell you what's happening at the very beginning of John 11. We've got Jesus, he's midway, well he's reaching the end of his public ministry of preaching and teaching and um, he's performed great miracles and Jesus receives a message that his friend Lazarus, one of his followers, is very, very sick. And thankfully Jesus is only a couple of miles away. So you've got Jesus, famous for his healing, his miraculous power. He receives a message that someone he loves is very, very sick and only a few miles away. And yet that leads us to surprise number one. It's going to be on the screen. Check it out. Jesus delays his travel and instead does what? He allows his friend to die. Now, I wonder what you do if you see someone in trouble. What what would you do if you saw someone in trouble and had the ability to help them? Well, listen to what Jesus does. I'll read it. It's been on the screen, though. Verse 5 of chapter 11 says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. If we see someone in life and death danger and we have the ability to help, what should we do? Help. In fact, I looked it up this week. In the Western world, it's actually in many, many countries against the law not to help someone in a life and death situation so long as you can do it without putting your own life at risk. If you've seen the last episode of Seinfeld, the the Good Samaritan law, okay, you need to help someone. However, it's not a law here except in one place. Can you guess what part of Australia has a law prohibiting laziness and help? The Northern Territory. I mean, I used to live in the the Northern Territory, the place where you will most need help. Cyclones, snakes, spiders, serial killers, all of them are up there. And that is the place where if you don't help someone in a life and death situation, you can be put in prison for seven years. Moral of the story... Oi, move to the Northern Territory. It's a great place to be in trouble. However, if you don't like helping people, do not move to the Northern Territory because you will be in trouble. Lazarus is in deep, deep trouble. Jesus has the power to help in that trouble, yet he does not go to help him. In fact, what we learn as chapter 11 unfolds is that Jesus stays where he is for two more days. In fact, it almost says and seems in that passage that he does so because he loves Lazarus. Why would he do that? Well, of course, we've got the benefit of knowing what happens at the end, of knowing that Lazarus rises from the dead, of knowing that Jesus raises Lazarus. And so we might go, well, he does that because he wants to show everyone that he's got the power over death. And I want to say, yes, that is part of the reason why he delays his travel. However, that is also an incredibly strange thing to do for Jesus when you understand surprise number two. Check this one out. Surprise number two is very, very clear that Jesus hates death. You see, when Jesus finally leaves, Lazarus is already dead. He's been dead 
for a day by the time Lazarus, sorry, Jesus leaves. By the time Lazarus, sorry, Jesus arrives and, and approaches the village, Lazarus has been dead for four days. His family and his friends are beside themselves with grief, as they should be. We see um, Lazarus's sisters, Martha and Mary, and we all need sisters like Martha and Mary if you have them. Hold on to them. They're terrific. They approach Jesus, and look what they say uh, in their response. They both say the same sort of thing, verse 21, verse 32. Jesus, Lord. They don't say it with anger, but with pain, with grief. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is he, are they right? Yes. Yes, if he had been there, he would not have died. And that's a fair thing to say. But of course, we know Jesus already knew that. He delayed his travel because of this. So how do you think Jesus will respond? You've got grieving people, weeping and wailing people. And you know you're about to rise the person from the dead. What will you do? What do you think he'll say? Oi, oi, relax, relax, take it easy. Don't tell anyone. Look at this. Boom. Or will he go and go, oh... Ye of little faith, should have trusted me. Watch this. No, that's not what Jesus does. Look what Jesus says. When Jesus saw Mary weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And deeply moved is the understatement of the translation competition in the year. Okay, it does not mean slightly sad as it reads. It means outraged. Jesus, he's outraged, angry. But it's not just anger and outrage that Jesus exhibits. Look at verse 35. Jesus wept. Now that's a small verse, but not small in meaning. Jesus sobbed. This isn't Anglo-Saxon tears. This is Middle Eastern tears. Jesus wept. In grief, in anger, in outrage. The question is, why? Jesus knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why is he outraged and weeping at death? Because Jesus hates death. My first experience of death was um, my grandfather, Arthur, he lived with us uh, till I was a teenager. He was a lovely man full of life and joy and, and humour. But I remember when he was dead, when he died, I, I went in with the rest of the family to see his body and I think that he was in a bed with pyjamas on or something. They'd put him... And there he was, identical to the grandpa I'd seen earlier that day and yet nothing like the grandpa I'd seen earlier that day. What made him him was gone. And something became very clear to me in my teenage years upon viewing this body, something striking, unforgettable, that death is not a joke. Death is real. And it's terrible. It's outrageous. It's horrific and and awful. Death, um, Death is permanent. You know, um, I don't know how you felt watching uh, Bodil speak. Um... Death is terrible. I saw Shane Warne died, as you know, recently, and um, there's a commentator who was on television talking about it, and he was cracking jokes about it. I understand why. He's trying to make people feel better, and there's no, I'm not like I get what, what he was doing. But this commentator made this big joke about where Warney was now after after he'd died. That Warney didn't make it to heaven yet because of his 
the photos on his phone. He was in purgatory. A few more durries, a few more drinks, and he'll get there. And then um, this big laughter. <laughs> and I just watched it and thought, no. It's not funny. Death is permanent and it's real. It's not a joke. And it's coming for every single one of us. There's nothing we can do to avoid it. And Jesus weeps at death because death is an intruder into his world. Death is a, is a killer, a murderer who is coming to his world and attacks his people and devastates everyone in his wake. And if you don't feel that way about death, it just means you don't know enough people who've died. Death is devastating. And so Jesus, because he's our Lord, he weeps with those who weep. Verse 33 makes it clear. He mourns with those who mourn. He weeps because he understands the pain that they're going through. And he hates that they go through this pain. But it's not just sympathy that leads to the tears. After all, he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why not just dry your tears, Jesus, and get over it? No, no, no. It's not just sympathy and empathy. There's more to Jesus' hatred of death than just sadness. You see, what's deeply behind Jesus' hatred of death is that he knows more about it than we do. You know, you may not know this already, but the Bible actually speaks about two kinds of death that every single human being goes through. Two kinds. The first one is physical death, the one that Bodo was speaking about with his father, that my grandpa, that we've got Lazarus going through here, death, and that separates us, physical death, from one another. It destroys and devastates all of us in its wake. Physical death is truly horrific. There's nothing like it on this earth. But also, there's spiritual death that the Bible talks about, spiritual death. Physical death separates us from one another, but spiritual death... Spiritual death is the separation of us from God. The Bible says um, that you're not here by accident. I don't mean in this church, although yes, in this church. But you're not here on earth by accident. That you have been created on purpose. God made you on purpose for a purpose. What's the purpose that you were made for? Well, it's not to get money and be popular and get a house and surf. The purpose you were made for was to know God, to be in a relationship with God. But all of us have turned our backs on that. We've, we've disregarded God. We've turned our backs on his offer. We've, we've disregarded what he says about how to live, and the Bible calls that sin. And I understand that sin could be a word that has got a lot of baggage for you, and it can be a hard word to understand, but it literally means, it's an archery term, that literally means falling short of the target, falling short of the mark, and it's something we all do. Sin, think of it this way, is living in God's world as God's creation, but acting as if God doesn't matter. And the payment for sin, the repercussion of sin is separation between us and God, spiritual death. And, and this is the horror of death that Jesus sees, because the tragedy of death that Jesus understands better than anyone is that death does not end in the grave. If physical death arrives before spiritual death is solved, then our eternal future will be in spiritual death. Eternity separated from the God who made you and, and loves you. Jesus hates death. And so he doesn't avoid it. 
And he doesn't um, um, romanticize it and beautify it. And, and, and he doesn't joke about it or minimize it. No, no, no. What does Jesus do with death? He confronts it. In fact, let me go so far as to say, if, if you want to come up with a reason why Jesus lived, I don't think you'd be too far wide of the mark to say that one of the chief reasons Jesus was even on earth was to confront death. His confrontation with death is at the center of his life. And that leads us to the third surprise that he gives us. Have a look at this. Walking up to the tomb, verse 43, verse 44, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off his grave clothes and let him go. You know, 2,000 years later, we can do amazing things medically, amazing things with science and technology. We can uh, just do things beyond what they could imagine in the ancient world. We can send people to the moon and back and maybe even beyond. And yet no matter all the advancements in, in medical technology and science, none of us have developed a cure for death. We can't raise a mosquito back to life, let alone a person. Death has been the end. And yet this miracle... It's truly staggering. Let me be just, if you don't know the Bible very well, it's not something that happens all the time, people rising from the dead, not at all. This is an incredible miracle where Jesus proves his power, not just over illness, but over death. And yet I want to say to you, here's what's truly surprising taking place at the center of this miracle. The resurrection of Lazarus is not the biggest surprise. The resurrection of Lazarus is not for Lazarus. Not exclusively. The resurrection of Lazarus is actually not about Lazarus. It's for you. And it's about Jesus. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but in in the Bible, when they talk about the miracles of Jesus, they often call them signs. Have you heard that before, signs? Now, why are they called signs? For a simple reason that um, they point somewhere else. What do signs do? Well, signs are just a a representation of reality. You know, they, they point to something bigger. They're a representation of what's actually real. This is a sign pointing elsewhere. Where is this sign pointing? It's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to not just him being the master over the grave, the master over the deathbed, not just his identity, that that must mean he is God-made flesh. No, no, no. It's also pointing to what he came to do. Understand this. When, When Jesus had to show his power over death, he needed someone to die. But for him to destroy the power of death over all people, he himself had to die. I don't know how you think you would respond if you saw Jesus raise someone from the dead. Or if you think everyone would respond the same way. Surely everyone would celebrate. But what we read happen next is truly surprising. You know, After raising Lazarus, people respond in two different ways. Some people see it and believe, but not everybody. Others witness this act and they're outraged. They rush off to tell the religious authorities, authorities who are already sick of Jesus. And so a short time after Lazarus was wrapped in grave clothes and buried in a tomb, Jesus was mocked 
and beaten in chains. He was spat upon. He was derided. He was whipped. And he was led to a Roman cross on a hill called Golgotha. Jesus was crucified and killed. And you know, to to many there watching, his death seemed like a tragedy. All the power, all the promise, all the potential, gone. All the passion, all the love, all the wisdom, over. It appeared that death did what it has always done, captured another victim. And yet all was not how it seemed. Why did Jesus die? Well, Jesus died in order to not just tell us, but provide the greatest surprise of all. That by dying and rising from the dead, he gives life. You know, three days after Jesus died, his disciples went to the tomb. To their shock, it was open. Upon entering, they discovered no body but grave clothes. Lazarus had risen from the dead in his grave clothes. But in Jesus' tomb, no body but grave clothes. The, The male disciples rushed back to their hiding spot. But one of them, Mary Magdalene, not the sister of Lazarus, another Mary. There's a lot of Marys in the New Testament. Mary Magdalene stayed where she was weeping. She thought... The body had been stolen. And yet in the midst of her tears, someone approaches her. And he says her name, Mary. And Mary understood. He is risen. He's not been stolen. He's not been whisked away somewhere. He is risen. And Jesus then went and he appeared to all of the disciples in the flesh. He showed them the holes in his hands, the the hole in his side, eating and speaking to them. In fact, the Bible records that Jesus physically appeared to his disciples and others, over 500 people, many, many times over the next 40 days. Jesus is risen. Just like Lazarus, his heart had stopped beating. His, His air had stopped going through his lungs. He was dead. But just like Lazarus, He came back from the dead. However, that is where the comparison ends. Jesus' resurrection is different to Lazarus's, much different. I want you to listen to how Jesus describes it. It'll be here in your piece of paper. Have a look there at verse 25. It'll be on the screen. Martha and Jesus, the elder sister, they're interacting about eternal life, about the resurrection to come. And Jesus says this to her in verse 25, the most important verses in the entire chapter. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now, what does that mean? Remember how Jesus feels about death. He hates it. Death is an intruder into his world. It's horrifying. Worse still, it separates us not just from one another, but spiritual death has separated us from God. On our own, we are lost. We are as incapable of resurrecting ourselves spiritually as we are of resurrecting ourselves physically. And yet Jesus, 
the one whom we have sinned against, took our sins on his soul, on his shoulders, and went to the cross and died on our behalf. By dying and resurrecting from the dead, Jesus took the punishment we deserve. It means we can be forgiven, but not just that. It means we can be reconciled with God. You and I can know God. His death and resurrection guarantees our spiritual life. It guarantees our spiritual resurrection. And that's what he means when he says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. It is in him that resurrection comes. It is in him and only him that life comes. On our own, we are facing death. But for those who believe, Jesus offers eternal life. And that word means, yes, life to come forever, but also a new life Now, C.S. Lewis, one of the most famous writers of the 20th century, Northern Irishman, he, he said this, Jesus has forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. My friends, the death and resurrection of Lazarus brought temporary respite for a man who would die again. But the death and resurrection of Jesus brings eternal life for all who would believe. Death has been killed. Jesus has smashed through it. And I want to say to you, just as we finish here, that means as you think about your life, we must view it differently. Here's a picture of my grandfather's gravestone. Can you see it there? Arthur Henry Jensen, it says. I hope you can see it. I don't have time to tell you about his life except to say it was incredible. Um, Incredible, from poverty to the 20th century through world wars and depression. First father died in the Spanish flu, stepfather murdered in a gambling dispute. It was just an incredible life. He was a wonderful, wonderful man who did incredible things. Children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. And yet, as individual and unique as his life was, there's there's something about him which is the same as all of us. In fact, there's something about Arthur Henry Jensen, which actually every single person on the planet has in common. Rich, poor, white, black, male, it doesn't matter. And it's here on the the screen. Can you see it? You'll see it right between 1909 and 1995. You see that tiny little dash? His entire life summarised by a dash. That's it. And every single gravestone is the same. All the money, all the relationships, all the success, all the failure. One tiny dash. It begins and it ends like that. And we don't get to do it again like that. But what this gravestone doesn't show is what happens after 1995. You see, after 1995, there is no dash. After 1995, it stretches on forever. Forever and ever and ever. There's no beginning and end. There's no end point. It's eternity. And what Jesus is saying very clearly for us is that where you spend eternity will be determined by how you think about and understand and accept the death and resurrection of Jesus today in that little dash. 
When Jesus finishes speaking to Martha, he says this question, I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you will live. And then he simply says at the very end, do you believe this? Where you spend eternity is determined by your answer to that question. And so this stunning Easter morning, this resurrection day, I simply want to repeat the question that Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? If you do, you have already been spiritually raised, a new creation reborn, and never forget that. The spiritual resurrection you have received will be there after you leave this physical life onto the physical resurrection to come. But if you haven't, what I want to say to you is please don't stop thinking about it. Keep searching. It's so wonderful that you're here with us this morning. Please don't stop thinking into it and understanding what it is that Jesus is saying here. We've got a bunch of things on at church. Every Sunday is a good Sunday to come to church. There's a course coming up in a few weeks called Explaining Christianity. We'd love to get you along to that. Come and speak to one of us. We'd love for you to keep investigating these claims of Jesus. But of course, it might be that today, as we've been singing the songs, as you've heard um, Bodil reflect on death, as you've understood now what Jesus is offering and saying in the Word of God, that it might be today is the day you decide, you know what? I do believe this. And I've never come to terms with it. I've never come to God about it. But I want to. And so what I want to do right now as we, as we end, is I want to invite you, if you're in that position, to become a Christian today. Don't put it off. To accept the offer that Jesus has given you of eternal life. So I'm going to close in prayer. And this is a prayer of accepting the gift Jesus has given. I want to say, it's not the prayer that saves anyone, not at all. It's the repentance and faith behind the prayer. And if you're in the position where you do want to pray that, just, just, just repeat the words in your own head, your own heart, your own soul. And everyone else, why don't we bow our heads as well? We'll bow our heads now and let's, let's pray to our great God. Let's pray. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me so I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me so that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen. My friends, if you have prayed that, or if you've prayed in the past, you know the Bible tells us that the angels rejoice and celebrate as someone has resurrection life, the Spirit resurrecting you from the grave. And I want to finish inviting you, if that is you, heck, even if you haven't, to actually rejoice maybe for the first time in proclaiming the great news that he is risen indeed. So let me finish one more time by saying it to you. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Praise God and amen. What better thing to do to respond than to sing?